We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Well, joining us today, we have the editor-in-chief of Jump Cut Online, the talented, friendly, and always enjoyable film critic, Fiona Underhill. Fiona, who is British but currently lives and works in California, is also a freelancer with bylines at Nerdist, Girls on Top's Tees, Crooked Marquee, and Movie John. Fiona, I've always appreciated your work. And you're so supportive and very insightful on Twitter. So it's been a pleasure getting to know you there. And it's great to have you here today. So how are you doing? And how have you been adapting to the ongoing pandemic? Thank you for having me on, first of all. Um, I've seen some of the other guests you've had on, and I'm honored that you would ask me. So thank you. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I'm... I'm okay, like compared to obviously lots of people. I'm very lucky in that my husband has managed to work from home. I do have two children who haven't been to school since the start of March 2020. So that's been that's been obviously the biggest change for us and the biggest kind of struggle is having the kids at home. They are meant to be going back to school in about a week so it will be almost exactly a year to the day since they were last there which is going to be a big adjustment for them and for us but hopefully that's going to go okay obviously I'm quite nervous about it but yeah I'm sure they're excited though but yeah it would be nerve-wracking can only imagine (laughs) yes And so what have you been working on lately? Is there anything exciting you have upcoming or over at Jump Cut that you'd like to give us a sneak preview of? Um, I've been still doing my Sundance coverage, which has taken quite a while. So even though we're now like a month past Sundance, so I've still been getting my coverage for that out slowly. Um, And today we actually published my interview with uh, Mark Bridges, who's an Oscar winning costume designer. And the interview was about News of the World, the Tom Hanks uh, Western Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is good. I'm not not usually a Western girl, but I really oh. enjoyed it. So uh, that's on our site today. Um, and we've got upcoming uh, coverage of various festivals. So we've got Glasgow Film Festival, we've got South by Southwest, um, and a few others coming up. Sounds great. Well, when we were coming up with ideas to discuss today, I was so thrilled when you revealed that one of your areas of film knowledge was the great Paul Newman, who has long been one of my favorites. In fact, one of the earliest assignments I remember having when I started writing online was to write his obituary when he passed on. And it was so overwhelming because from his career to his charity work, to his private or family life and just overall integrity, there is so much there to admire and cover. So what is it about Paul Newman that you respond to most? And do you remember the film or performance of his that you saw first that made you a fan? 
Um, I can't remember which of his films it was that I saw first. I know that Cat and a Hot Tin Roof would have been quite early. Uh, the Long Hot Summer as well, I remember watching at a young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my mother was a big fan of his. And I have a clear memory of, as a child, um, associating the fact that he was from the salad dressing bottle. Yes. And it absolutely, it absolutely <laughs> blew my mind. I was like... That's that's the guy from the salad dressing bottle. I just couldn't wrap my head around it at all. Um, so yes, we had a lot of sort of classic film on television when I was growing up. My stepfather was into westerns actually, which we just mentioned. But um, yeah, so there'd be quite a lot of classic films on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon that we'd watch. And then I just gradually became aware of Paul Newman um, from, as I say, a young age. And I've grown up kind of with him mm-hmm. um I've gradually I, I've seen about 20 of like his major movies kind of over the years but then in the last year I've watched like a further 15 of his lesser known ones oh, cool. so I've been I've been doing a bit of a catch-up and a deep dive on some of his lesser known work recently but I obviously think he's the most beautiful man to have ever lived. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that goes yes. without saying. Um, he's just like my, my one true love. I, cut, I just think he's like a perfect all-round human being mm-hmm. um, because of, you know, his relationship with his wife and mm-hmm. his, like we said, his charity work. He's, he's working like the civil rights movement in the 60s as well. Yes. Um, as well as obviously his career and his acting. I just... I can't can't think of a better person. So I'm yeah. uh, he's my you know he's my longest and you know long lasting love and he'll always just be the best of all time to me. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and that is the first movie I'd probably seen him in other things, but when I was like in middle school, I remember watching it and it just clicked. Like it was the first time I had seen that. And all of a sudden, it's who is he? Well, of course, Elizabeth Taylor and the whole cast really is phenomenal. But I was just blown away by him and completely then wanted to watch all the Paul Newman movies I could. And then when I was in high school, I was lucky enough, I won a National Writing Award. And when I went to Washington, D.C. for it, um, I was very excited for the award, obviously, and all the things that went with it. But the plaque, I noticed one of the first names on the foundations and who had um, given to, it was the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards and was Paul Newman. And so I asked somebody about that and they they explained that years earlier, he had been in Washington DC and walked around and happened to see all these, you know, art things on the wall by children and little excerpts of pieces and just wanted to know more about the organization and started giving. And so it was really exciting to bring that back home to like Minneapolis. And it's like, yeah, I won an award, but look, Paul Newman's name is on it. So (laughs) that was to me the coolest thing ever. And yeah, just his integrity, all of the things he did in his life and his causes, and sometimes even just quietly, like he wasn't one to take a lot of credit for these things. Last year on the podcast, I had on an author whose mentor was William Goldman. And he talked about, uh, you know, making Butch Cassidy and all these movies. And he had some issues in his career around all the president's men time with Robert Redford. But he said, Paul Newman was just the best of men, had no idea how good looking he was or why people considered him talented or anything. He was just an everyday guy and knew how lucky he was. And so that was really good to hear, too. Yeah. Yeah. Everything I I hear about him and read about him, it just (laughs) makes me love him more, to be honest. I know. Um, Yeah, the fact that he was kind of humble and and unassuming. Um, I mean, I know he got irritated a bit by people sort of talking about his eyes and things. But he just wanted to focus on the work and he he continued to work at it. He never thought... I'm a star, I'm brilliant, you know, I I don't need to work at this. I think he did take acting seriously and he saw it as a craft that needed work. Um, And I like that about him as well. 
Yes, very true. Well, obviously, with Paul Newman, there are many different directions we could have gone in today. But I thought it was really clever of you to zero in on those forgotten or overlooked or lesser known unchampioned works, including The Rack, What a Way to Go, Absence of Malice, and Nobody's Fool. And while the last two are a bit more well known and bigger hits, they often get lost in the shuffle when people start looking back on his work. Everyone brings up like Butch Cassidy or Cool Hand Luke and kind of forgets about some of these. So I also love that you selected films of different genres from different decades and featuring different sides of the actor. So this should be really fun. Feel free to reference any of the films or any movie at all at any time, but (laughs) I thought we would start taking them one by one chronologically. So kicking things off, we have The Rack from 1956, directed by Arnold Laban and based on the 1955 teleplay by Rod Serling, which was first featured on TV's The U.S. Steel Hour, a war drama about a returning POW who survived two years in a Korean prison war camp. Paul Newman's army captain, Edward W. Hall Jr., returns home to his post in San Francisco, to find himself soon put on trial for collaborating with the enemy, the son of a tough retired colonel in the form of Walter Pigeon, and suffering from obvious PTSD. There's a lot here for Newman to work with, and it has a great cast, including Wendell Corey and Lee Marvin. I ultimately wanted to like it more than I did, but it was really interesting to see this intense, focused performance so early on for Newman. So I'm very glad that you chose it. What are your thoughts on the rack? <laughs> I saw your letterbox rating of this movie and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get stuck into this with you because I think <laughs> it's absolutely incredible, to be honest with you, this movie. Gotcha. Um, it's a very early Newman performance, especially with him as the main character. It's a starring role for him. And he's um, obviously this is very close to the time when he was at the actor's studio. And you can really see that in his performance. Mm-hmm. Um what really blows my mind about it is that it was released in 1956 and it's about the Korean War. Yes. And when you when you think about the, how recent that was, literally one or two years, you know, beforehand it had finished. And obviously, when they were making the movie, it would have been right at that very time when the war was ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and what blows my mind about it is that it's really a considered piece about PTSD, about the trauma of war, about psychological torture. And it's, um, I I just, I can't sort of believe that it was made, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, we'll probably get to the ending, which um, I think was a kind of inevitable ending that a, a movie made at that time kind of had to take. But up until that point, I think it's so massively ahead of its time the way it thinks it considers the sort of mental trauma to soldiers, what they'd been through, the fact that the difference between um, physical torture and mental torture. So what Paul Newman's character goes through is that they use this technique on him of, of isolation and loneliness and they make him write this autobiography to find out more about him. And then they use facts about his life. So his relationship with his father and they use that against him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he ends up because they kind of worn him down after so long in this in solitary confinement. He ends up sort of collaborating with the enemy, which is why he's being court-martialed. Mm-hmm. But I just I think it's approach to uh, you know to like I say to war. And if you consider something today um, and think about uh, you know recent wars, it would you can't kind of imagine a film coming out now about something that is happening now that goes into this that is so it kind of has this um perspective that is almost like you know it was made 10 years later or 20 years later looking back on this war but it was Mm -hmm. made right then (laughs) so it just it just really I think the writing is incredible I think the acting is incredible and it it's just a very it's it's you know sort of shocking in a way that it's made about 
events that were happening right then and there and nowadays we have things like um the report has come out and the Mauritanian about uh things that were happening around the time of the Iraq war which is Mm -hmm. nearly 20 years ago and even now we think oh you know they're they're bringing out films about something that happened really recently but it was like (laughs) you know that was nearly 20 years ago now yeah and we and we think oh you have to be careful if if any kind of uh tv or film comes out about 9-11 for example people are like you, you you know you have to be incredibly tasteful and really consider mm-hmm. what you're what you're going to say in that piece of artwork but this was something that came out right at the time it was happening and yeah. I think I think the writing is so strong I think it's so ahead of its time and and uh, Paul Newman's performance really rises to meet the occasion It really does. That's a very good point. You know, listening to you talk about that phenomenon, I was thinking recently, like we had the Hurt Locker, which did deal with Iraq, of course, but it was, I want to say that was 2008, 2009. So we were a few years in it. The only thing I can think of, and probably because I grew up watching those movies, especially being obsessed with De Niro and the actors of the 70s, are the Vietnam films from the 70s. Like they kind of you know, Coming Home, and then Deer Hunter, and all those films. But there were a few of those movies made during the era that I think handled it really well. But I think with The the Rack, for me, the highlight was the writing. Obviously, you've got Rod Serling, amazing writer. I think it would have been really effective, especially on the stage, because I feel like it lost some of the momentum because it was really intense and you're totally there with it. And then they would go home or we'd see other characters. And I thought, no, stick here, stick with Paul Newman because what he's doing in this scene has completely got me. So I think that might've been part of it. But yeah, overall it was really interesting. And what I loved too was when he first gets home Yeah, And there's that scene, because you don't think about this too much. You only think of PTSD as like starting with Vietnam. You don't think of shell shock as far back as World War I or anything. Yeah, People have kind of small memories today. But I love the sequence where they're talking to families about like, don't ask too many questions, you know, just be there for them. I thought that was really ahead of its time. And so that was kind of cool to see. Yeah, I, I, I think the fact that, yeah, it considers the effect on the families as well and yeah. how they are going to have to deal with this person coming back from this situation. That, I mean, again, I just find it astonishing, astonishingly mm-hmm. ahead of its time. And then um, there's all these little sort of tells when he first gets back and he's putting his hand in front of his mouth mm-hmm. because he's um, paranoid about the fact that he's pulled out some of his own teeth while he was in solitary confinement but also he's got this thing where he's trying to stop himself from talking he was like I used to bite on my hand so I wouldn't tell them what they wanted to hear I just I find the whole thing heart-wrenching and and um and also when he, he actually gets home and then they throw this massive surprise party for him and you're just looking at this man who's completely traumatised by war in this, in, and there's all this loud noise and they're all surrounding him and you're just like, you don't understand at all what you're doing here. Just, I you know, know, leave him alone, please. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just think... And, and then it does become like a, a trial movie that obviously is the kind of main part of the film. It's about 40 mi- minutes into the film that the trial mm-hmm. starts. But if I compare it to something like The Trial of the Chicago 7, I think as the <laughs> trial movie, it's, it's really, really good. And I get yeah. maybe people might get a bit bored of those trial scenes. But to me, it's really compelling because yes. the, prose- the, the prosecutor... It's very conflicted. The the prosecutor knows what Paul Newman's been through and he's very, Mm -hmm. he's having quite a hard time sort of having to, you know, prosecute him for what he's done because he understands the context. And then the defender kind of trying to obviously get out Paul Newman's story and making him read from this autobiography in the actual courtroom Mm -hmm. as well. There's so many parts of it that really are, you know, emotional. And you think 
uh, you know, some people say, oh, you know, I really struggle with that 90, like older films and the acting mm-hmm. style and the fact that it's all kind of overblown. And I do myself have a few issues with like James Dean. I don't particularly like his acting style and Marlon Brando. I can find them very overwrought, melodramatic. It's all very much, you know, the drama of being a teenager and no one <laughs> understands me and all of that. But I think, you know, the acting in The Rat, considering it's 1956, is is very, very good and it's very naturalistic. I don't think it's out of place compared to today at all. And and also the part where he's in the car with his father and he, his father realises that all Paul Newman has ever wanted is, you know, a hug from his father or a kind word. And it's this horror, you know, horribly awkward part where the father like tries to sort of touch his son, but he's obviously, you know, not very good at it because he's literally never done it before. But I think even that you might say, oh, you know, that sounds a bit over the top. But even that I think is really well done. You know, I'm really impressed with the acting. Mm hmm. Yeah, really good points there, too. And what was interesting is you kind of got me on this kick now where I wanted to watch more Paul Newman movies that were (laughs) overlooked or ones I'd always wanted to see. So I found myself renting Left Handed Gun, which I'd heard about. Now, that one is interesting because it's Arthur Penn directed it. And I know you know this, of course, but for anyone (laughs) listening who doesn't, uh, James Dean was supposed to be in the film and then he passed away and then Paul Newman took on his role. And I remember growing up watching a personal journey through American movies with uh, Martin Scorsese and he showed clips of it. And he was like, he's almost doing it as a James Dean style performance. And he really is. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of interesting to see that was 1958 and then the rack was 56. So it was kind of, he was still sort of finding what he wanted to do. Like you said, even later in life, he was still working on his performances. Yeah. And you can kind of tell the more naturalistic style performances that he was doing were much more real and much more just compulsively watchable. And so that was kind of a cool little apples and oranges thing to watch uh, (laughs) the rack and then left-handed gun. So thank you for inspiring me to check that one out too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, from the fifties, there's only a cat on hot tin roof is the only really well-known movie and the long hot summer, I guess. Yeah. From the fifties, but I've seen like nine Paul Newman uh, movies from, from the Mm fifties and they are quite interesting. They do. I mean, until they sail is another war movie, which I found again, quite impressive considering how, how recent the war was. Um, And then there's the young Philadelphians towards the end, which is a bit more of a kind of, again, James Dean inspired kind of mean. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's some there's some interesting stuff in the fifties. I, I you know I I really like it as a decade anyway. But yeah, look, what I've liked about doing this um, uh, sort of this deep dive into Paul Newman is and the fact that it takes you obviously through the decades is you can see so many different styles and you can see how things sort of develop and progress over the time as well. Yeah, very good. Well, next up, we have a total change of pace with the wild, (laughs) very 60s, almost variety show like star-studded, madcap rom-com, What a Way to Go, directed by Jay Lee Thompson and starring a delightful Shirley MacLaine, recounting her life and late loves, as in the multiple husbands she's lost over (laughs) the years, as after each one is put money before everything else they've died in the successful pursuit of millions it's a repetitive but really diverting film that gives mclean the enviable opportunity to make out with a (laughs) veritable who's who of hollywood hunks and film favorites including paul newman dean martin robert mitchum gene kelly and dick van dyke (laughs) spoofing other genres and filmmaking styles the movie incorporates elements of silent film lush costume dramas musicals foreign and art filmmaking even though it doesn't fully flow from one scene to the next it is ambitious and a lot of fun so what did you think of this one 
I love this movie. Oh. It's 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 the most sixties movie you can possibly it imagine. Really I is. think. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's right from kind of slap bang in the middle of the decade. And I, I what I love about it is that it's a totally different side to Paul Newman that you would never ever expect him to be in a movie like this. No. It's it's so so different. It's it's a comedy, and you know he, we don't until he gets into things like The Sting and Butch Cap. Cassidy we start to see more of a comedic side to him Mm -hmm. you know he we very very rarely see him really go kind of to town (laughs) with something so bizarre and so funny um it's the most colorful kind of production design and the costume design of this film is absolutely insane in the best way um, but the part, the section that Paul Newman is in is like a a French New Wave yeah. film, <laughs> which kind of like doesn't, you know, is so different kind of to the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the most beautiful he's ever been. <laughs> yeah, he's got he's his <laughs> really, really curly hair and a beard. And people might might recognize some like still images and gifts from this movie because it's it's sometimes singled out as like you know whoa what does Paul Newman look like in this movie because he's playing <laughs> playing this like impoverished artist in Paris um and he <laughs> he, he gets an amazing death scene so all all these ex-husbands of hers all kind of die in hilarious and madcap kind of ways and and Paul Newman is no no exception so he gets this hilarious kind of he invents a machine that it turns sound into art like into visuals (laughs) into paint and then and then the machine kind of goes haywire and ends up killing him um (laughs) but it is as insane as it sounds but I just think although I'm sure he probably was looking back at it like you know why did I, I ever agree to be in that movie kind of thing yeah um he, I just think it's nice to see a totally mm-hmm. different side to him. It's obviously a, a light-hearted, madcap film. Shirley MacLaine looks incredible. There's this scene where she's in this um, black bikini, and it's one of you know the most stunning outfits I've ever seen, kind of on mm-hmm. film. Uh, there's all this pink involved like she has pink hair and then there's pink sets that are totally painted pink like all of the walls the floor everything is pink Um, it's just it's a very fun film Uh, and and, yes and it's just a very different side to Paul Newman that's completely unexpected and refreshing and that's what I like about it it's kind of like watching, you know, that's entertainment where they would go back and show like clips of all the MGM movies. It's kind of like they put all that stuff, but in one movie sort of. Yeah. So it's (laughs) really wild. It kind of, it's very daffy. It kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you might've seen this one with Natalie Wood called Penelope. No, where she, yeah, it's not, I think it's finally getting a little bit more, uh, of an audience thanks to TCM, but still it's kind of rare where she played a woman who was tired of being left behind by her husband who was kind of ignoring her. So she decides she's going to rob his bank. He's a, uh, runs the bank. So she robs the bank and she's telling her story to a shrink throughout and the shrink falls in love with her. Everybody kind of (laughs) falls in love with her. Peter Falk is in it and he's like trying to solve who robbed the bank and falls in love with her. I mean, it's Natalie Wood. Everyone is in love with her, but it kind of reminded me of this. And I thought, boy, if they put these two movies together, you would have the most sixties day ever. Very pink, very up, just doesn't make a lot of sense logically, but a lot of fun. It's like two movies you want to watch on a sick day basically yeah (laughs) definitely um uh there's you know it is kind of a psychedelic experience as some some of the best 60s movies are but um yeah it's absolutely crazy but I love it yes very stylish so if you're into fashion or color or looking for I'm kind of singling out my friend Kate Gabrielle. I know that this would be a movie, I'm sure she's probably seen it, but that she would probably really adore. Well, a journalism professor at a University of Minnesota media conference 
once argued that everything Alan J. Pakula's All the President's Men did for the profession, Sidney Pollock's absence of malice undid. And while that's a bit extreme, he did have a point, as in the 1981 movie, Sally Field's newspaper reporter character is like the poster child for what not to do on the job. As she pushes a story into print with very little sourcing or corroboration about a suspected racketeer played by Paul Newman. And then when Newman comes down to the newsroom to read Fields, the riot act, the two eventually become involved, but who's using who? Still incredibly entertaining, even if you really need to suspend your disbelief about her lapses in ethics and a little common sense. But flaws aside, it is damn good. For a thriller, for a newspaper movie, and also hits home, there is a twist that really just gets you right in the gut. It's There's a lot to this movie. I feel like <laughs> it's a roller coaster, basically. But for a Pollock movie par for the course the actors are all first rate especially the oscar nominated newman and the oscar nominated melinda dillon who most paul thomas anderson fans will remember as claudia gator's mom in magnolia melinda dillon breaks your heart in this she is just phenomenal i know you hadn't seen this one before so fiona what did you think of absence of malice yeah, so I chose this one because it's one I've always meant to watch but hadn't got around to. Um, mm-hmm. I am a sucker for a, 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 any movie that has that open plan newsroom. Obviously, All the President's Men is yes. like the most famous example, but mm-hmm. I love movies that are set in newsrooms. I just find something so compelling about that o- open plan desk space. Everyone's smoking. I know. Um, everyone moves from each other's desk and like everyone's holding like a coffee or sometimes like a, obviously alcohol, like a whiskey everyone's smoking and they're kind of hopping from desk to desk and asking each other's questions there's lots of loud typing I just love the atmosphere mm-hmm. of those kind of movies um Sally Field is great as always she looks amazing in this movie as well her, I love her costumes and her shoes she's wearing these high heel shoes and she keeps running up steps like outdoors I know, and yeah. I kept thinking be careful you're gonna break your ankle yes but, um <laughs> yeah she looks amazing um my, I did like it. I have got lots of questions. I know, um, right? <laughs> my, my main issue with it was that the age of pretty much every character didn't make sense to me. So Paul Newman and Sally Field, there's like a 20-year age gap, I think. Okay. Um, and then more kind of what I, what I really didn't kind of get was that the the kind of storyline hinges around this best friend of Paul Newman, Mm -hmm. who is a a Catholic school teacher in her 40s, and she has an abortion. And then Mm -hmm. obviously that's kind of, you know, she feels terrible about it. But her, her age just didn't make sense to me. I know she's Catholic, and that's how they kind of explain it. But it just, it would have made so much more sense if she was like a lot younger I felt but then also her friendship like she's supposed to have grown up with Paul Newman and they're like childhood best friends I think but then that didn't really make sense age-wise and like the whole thing didn't (laughs) no one's age kind of worked for me in this film gotcha Um, yeah I can see she should have been in her 20s it kind of reminds me of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where we're supposed to buy that Robert Downey Jr. grew up with Michelle Monaghan and you're like mm. that doesn't work buddy but yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but you know there was a lot of liked about it I, I mean at first when Paul Newman and Sally Field were like because there's this horrible scene where she does something really bad mm-hmm. and then she goes to his place of work it's like um uh, he's he it's like a a warehouse full of al- alcohol so it's like stacking boxes oh and he attacks her and then he attacks her yes. very violently and then in kind of quick succession they kind of get together and it's a bit like oh you know yeah I kind of once once they started kind of seeing each other I went along with it like it was Mm -hmm. you know it was believable obviously he's Paul Newman Um, (laughs) (laughs) but then um and I I really like the scene as well where they go out on his boat (laughs) and then that's such a good scene (laughs) it's such a good scene the photographer is meant to be kind of tailing her 
to protect her and then he ends up hiring a helicopter to kind yeah. of spy on her <laughs> yeah or the police the like are yeah, you yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah it you know it's good I liked it um all the kind of ins and outs of the plot in terms of what was going on with the politics of it yeah Yeah. I wasn't really following all of that to be honest I was just mainly kind of you know watching it for Sally Field Paul Newman and just enjoying you know the atmosphere of what I was watching um I know, you know, her as a journalist is kind of, you know, you can kind of criticise her decisions, but I feel like she, you know, it is that classic thing of being a journalist and like how far to push a story kind of morally because you want to get the story. And obviously in her position where she's, uh, you know, trying to kind of progress herself career-wise when she's surrounded by men, you know, I kind of, I had some some sympathy for, you know, who oh, she yeah. was and the decisions she made and why she made them. Um, but yeah, it was, it was enjoyable. Yes. Yeah, it's a good one. There's a lot going on. It's <laughs> one of those where I think, I mean, it isn't to the extreme of like Miller's Crossing, but if somebody tested me on the plot in and out right <laughs> afterward, I probably would fail or it'd be like, maybe maybe skate by with a C I don't know because yeah it's a lot of who's who and who's playing who yeah I mean and Wilford Paul, Brimley shows up I and know like, what? <laughs> yes uh, Paul Newman's father was a bootlegger I kind yes. of I've got understood that and I understood yeah. why he was under suspicion but then it's all kind of yeah, the, yeah. towards the end I was like I, I don't really know what's going and on here but I'm Bellman. enjoying it yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah Bob Bellaman's in it he's great yeah <laughs> wasn't he it was like hey Bob Bellaman back then it took me a sec I'm like how do I know him and then (laughs) yes Bob Melvin yeah well lastly we have Newman in another Oscar nominated role with 1994's Nobody's Fool from director Robert Benton and adapted from the eponymous novel by Richard Russo, a casual multi-generational hangout movie with Real Heart, co-starring Jessica Tandy, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith, Pruitt Taylor-Vince, Margot Martindale, and even Philip Seymour Hoffman in a small role. The film is even better than I remembered it being. Of course, the last time I saw it was at the theater when I was 13 years old. And let's just say that my friend Laurel was so miserable. She didn't let me choose the next movie for quite a while. She was very (laughs) bored. As it turns out, unless it's like grumpy old men, there are not a lot of kids who are eager to watch movies about feisty seniors with daddy issues. But who knew, really? I really enjoyed revisiting it. So terrific choice. What are your thoughts on Nobody's Fool? I absolutely love this movie and I want to quickly shout out I think 94 is like the last kind of golden year for Newman because the proxy and nobody's fall are two of my absolute favorite Newman films mm-hmm. um I love Richard Russo I absolutely love I've read like the four books that he made around this time and the the other one is Empire Falls which oh I Newman love that book yeah. And um, Paul Newman and Philip Seymour Hoffman were in the TV adaptation in 2005 of Empire Falls. So um, if you like Nobody's Fall and if you've seen it but haven't seen Empire Falls, then check that out as well. I want to urge people. Mm-hmm. Um, Nobody's Fall, I just think the writing, because it's Richard Russo, the writing is so good. The dialogue is absolutely pitch perfect it's so funny there's so much banter and I really like American small town films where you get this sense of community of the sense of everybody knows each other there's all these bitter rivalries as well usually between characters that have gone back you know for generations but also there's so much heart and warmth to it as well so Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Newman's character has like a best friend who's like this much younger man but he's kind of a schlub and he's always asking to like borrow money there's Paul Paul Newman's uh, relationship with his estranged son that's a Mm -hmm. whole like really kind of really good thread to it and like you see how their relationship evolves in the film he's got his landlady Jessica Tandy you've got the so bumbling good. cop who's yes. <laughs> Seymour Hoffman um 
and all the characters are so rich it really reminds me of something like northern exposure um one of my favorite shows exactly same here so I just think all the characters are so real and have such a strong sense of time and place that's something the Coen brothers do so well as Mm -hmm. as well in things like Fargo uh, where you think you know I recognize this person I know them and I understand them fully within the context of where they are so this small town kind of American life I understand all their relationships uh, and that's a lot harder to do than you know people realize when you're writing a, a screenplay is to get all of those kind of things right where you just kind of fully buy into who these people are and where they are and you Mm -hmm. soak up the atmosphere of that town and I just think it's so well written and brilliantly performed. Bruce Willis, like we have to talk about Bruce Willis, who apparently they didn't use him in the marketing for the film at all and I'm not sure if he's even credited on it because he was an action star at the time but he gives a really good performance there. And I think he really seamlessly fits into this town. You might be like, oh, you know, what is the diehard guy doing here kind of thing? But <laughs> yeah. he's, he plays Paul Newman's boss, kind of, like that kind mm-hmm. kind of his boss kind of isn't. Um, but I think he's brilliant in this movie, and I wish yeah. he, did, he did more films like this. He's got um, a, a wife, Melanie Griffith, and I fully buy the Melanie Griffith flirtation yes. with Paul Newman. Yeah. I really love that, and I think it's totally believable. Again, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything kind of creepy about it. No, it just, it's it playful. Just, yeah, and it works completely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just I really think the actors are brilliant, the writing is brilliant, and yeah, nobody's fool and Hudsucker Proxy, 1994. This is like, you know, that year for me is such a strong Paul Newman year, and and people need to know about these movies and watch them because they're so yes. good. Peak Paul Newman. Yeah, it's interesting because I've read a majority of Russo's books, but this is the one I just for some reason I have not read it yet. So watching it again, it made me <laughs> now want to pick this one up because I think Empire Falls is probably my favorite. Bridge of Sighs was amazing. I've read some of his other ones that I liked. My, um, my favorite one by Russo is called Straight Man, which is set in a college. It's it's quite yes. one Wonder Boys like. Yeah, um, that's that my was favorite. Good. That's my favorite Russo. But the Nobody Falls, Empire Falls, kind of I very much consider them you know like Links. a paired yeah <laughs> kind of a paired thing yeah. and and they uh yeah they're both brilliant the russo literary universe yes <laughs> <laughs> of these two you brought up a really good point with bruce willis because i feel like hollywood didn't know what to do with him and then he kind of became a marquee name and enjoyed you know that planet hollywood i'm a world superstar thing like i mean he started out in moonlighting and he's really funny on that show too and then you see die hard and then he became action guy he did a couple sleazy sexier thrillers he did do pulp fiction but again it was a like an uber masculine type performance yeah and I I love seeing him in this because it does show his range. Yeah. And yeah, I think he should have maybe taken more chances. I don't know if he didn't get the scripts or his agent was only looking for a certain type of movie. But, but I feel he, like he does he does really well with the dialogue here and he his does. Ba- his banter with Newman is so good in this film. It it's definitely really definitely a side to him, you know, that we don't usually see. Yeah. Um, He's really good in it. Yeah. And I wonder if part of the training of Moonlighting, saying that much dialogue that quickly, <laughs> might have helped him here. Yeah. Yeah. And Melanie Griffith is great. One of my favorite scenes in the movie. And then I think they might have even used the clip in the advertising, possibly also in his, you know, nominated for an Oscar little best <laughs> actor thing was when he says to Melanie Griffith, like there's a scene in the movie where he's going to run away with her. Or she finally had enough of Bruce Willis and comes with plane tickets, like let's go. And he had walked out on his family years earlier. And, but he of course has, you know, such a crush on her. And, and <laughs> of course, like, let's go, it's winter. Let's get the hell out of here. But when he gets the truck and then he, tells her why he can't go and he gives this like monologue of I just found out I'm somebody's grandfather and I'm somebody's father and I'm somebody's friend and it's just 
like clutch your heart. Like it's just <laughs> really good. And I buy it completely. It's very genuine, sincere, and just a really interesting movie. You brought up Wonder Boys when you were talking yeah. about Straight Man. And that's another one. Uh, Wonder Boys takes place in a small town, college yeah. campus. I just talked about the movie with Walter Chaw on his episode. It's one of my favorites. But you can kind of see him as sort of a Grady Trip kind of character. Like people in town in Nobody's Fool have issues with the Paul Newman character. But, you know, the more you get to know him, the more you like the guy. And yeah. he's trying to make amends. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's not the most sympathetic character because he did walk out walk on out. his family mm -hmm. when when his son was like six months or a year old. Yeah. Um, he barely knows him now. Like his son even says to him, like, do you think about me? And Newman's oh. just like S sometimes. <laughs> and it's like, oh. it's, you know, and the son's like, I think about you all the time. And it's just yeah. a, it's a really, really sort of heart wrenching moment. But um, you know, Paul Newman's not even met his grandchildren, I don't think, mm -hmm. or, you know, barely knows who they are anyway. And then you start to see him get this little relationship with one of his grandsons and they start to kind of form a little friendship. And there it's just go. a bit like, oh, <laughs> you know, yes. it's just, you know, he's he that's the good thing about it as well. It's like even within a movie runtime, these characters go through proper arcs and proper journeys yeah. and like growth and you know, some some entire TV series can't can't manage that, you know, it no. within their running time. So yeah, I just think it's so, so well written. Uh and then, you know, the actors rise to rise to meet it. Yeah, and even the supporting characters like Marco Martindale, who yes. only has a few moments, but she you just feel like you know all exactly. of the characters. Like they're, uh, they're real yeah. people. I mean, yeah. I, I don't want to start bashing other films, but this is I, I just I watch movies sometimes and I feel like this the person who wrote this just doesn't understand human <laughs> humans yeah. and how they speak and kind of how quickly you can establish some some directors and writers are brilliant at this establishing characters so quickly and making them recognizable to the audience and just like yes I know who this person is I recognize mm -hmm. this person as you know when I go to the diner or the bar that is that person and you know yeah so, some people are so brilliant at establishing that so quickly like you mm -hmm. say without hardly any screen time yeah it's just like yeah that's a recognizable human <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely well obviously paul newman's filmography is massive varied <laughs> and impressive and we could follow up our exploration of these four films with more episodes of four movies and not <laughs> run out of movies for paul newman for quite some time but i thought this was a really cool introduction and i'm glad you suggested it but before we go, are there any other unsung or largely overlooked movies of Paul Newman's that you'd like to be sure to recommend to people today? Um, yeah, so like I said about his sort of war movies, he's not really known for being like a war movie guy. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of interesting ones. So Until They Sail from the 50s and Rally Round the Flag Boys, they're both quite good war movies. Um, from the 60s, I've seen like 15 of his movies. And like I said, the 60s is definitely a decade where you can just watch 60s Paul Newman movies and you can see such a range of genres, yes. such a range of acting styles and directing styles. There's so much to discover. Um, there's there's ones that he did with, um, obviously, with Joanne Woodward. There's A New Kind of Love from the 60s. Uh, yeah, there's so many good ones. Mm -hmm. um, and then from, yeah, from the, the 90s and, you know, the 80s, 90s and beyond, I feel like I've mentioned the ones that, that I really love. Um, but, yeah, the, if you go back through his, you know, through his filmography like I've done, I think you'll be surprised at how much there is to discover and how much good stuff, you know. Like I say, I, I've only first watched The Rack within the last year. Yeah. And, you know, that's really blown me away and really impressed me. Like there's the Helen Morgan story from the 50s. That's a really interesting movie. 
there's mm-hmm. there's you know I felt like I really knew Paul Newman and his film filmography well but then even within the last year I've discovered like an, another 15 movies that I barely even had heard of so yeah there's so much there and it's it's a great you know I when we were just like re-watching to prep for this pod I watched nobody's fallen then the rack like straight afterwards and when you see yeah yeah you see like 1956 to 1994 and obviously you can barely recognize that that is the same person yeah but I think it's so interesting to see the development of his acting and his style and the way obviously the acting I find it really interesting the fact that acting changes so much from decade to decade and the way that he interacts obviously with his co-stars and how he kind of responds to the acting styles of the day kind of thing and when you've had that longer career I just think it's really interesting to track someone through those decades and see how how they change and respond to obviously what's going on around them. Yeah no that's a really great point that would have been quite a shock there going from (laughs) 94 to 56 like that but there are some things in common even thematically with the movies the father issues some of that so that might be an interesting double feature to anyone listening (laughs) pull a Fiona and watch them back to back and then also Empire Falls to get that yeah yeah complete picture there with Russo well I want to thank you so much for being here are there any maybe not even Paul Newman related movies that you want to recommend to anyone I know you're constantly watching new things I should just keep focused (laughs) on uh, jump cut and pay attention to those Sundance pieces um yeah I mean Sundance was a, a strange one I felt like it was the first festival where we really felt the effects of the pandemic it yeah. was it was kind of obvious from Sundance that films are not going to be the same for a while and mm-hmm. they are starting to respond to how the world is now which is interesting but obviously doesn't always work as well yeah, uh, it does make me a little bit worried about the coming year film wise <laughs> because obviously last year I think was a really really Phenomenal. strong year for movies yeah. but that last year obviously wasn't affected by the pandemic because mm-hmm. the movies had been made already been made by that point. But this coming year, I think <clears throat> it's going to be very interesting film wise, and it's going to be really interesting to see various responses to what's going on in the world at the moment. But um, yeah, I do want to urge people. I'm sure if they listen to your podcast, they're already into film anyway. But the last year, so 2020, was a very, very strong year for film. It I was. really want to get across to people how much came out. People, you know, some people have the attitude of, "Well, did anything come out?" Because all, all <laughs> the movie theaters were closed. But um, you know, I think it was such a strong year. You can find so much on streaming, yes. on on video on demand. There's so many movies to explore and discover from the last year, and I really encourage people to seek them out because, you know, it was such a good year for movies. That's a great moment to end on, a great (laughs) observation. Yes, well, I want to thank you again, Fiona. It was also just really nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) It it is nice hearing people's voices and (laughs) when we've had a Twitter relationship for some time. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.